Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we'll begin begin reading in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 7, which is our sermon text for this morning. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Let's pray. Lord, please, now we ask, add your blessing to the reading of your word as we seek to understand your requirements for those who would serve as officers in the church. Please give us clarity. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. In the year A.D. uh, 53, there was a man by the name of Onasander. And Onasander wrote a work uh, that has been titled uh, The General. And as as time has gone on, this man's work, uh, The General, has reflected on as one of the most important works Uh, for that period of time, uh, giving us insight into the Roman army, the Roman military, how it functioned, what a general did. And the interesting thing about Onasander's work is that he listed requirements for what a general might be. What kind of a man would he be? I wonder how you would answer that question if you were given the task now for maybe hiring a general to go to Afghanistan and to lead the troops there, what kind of a man would you look for? This is a very important question. You think about 1 Samuel. When the people were looking for a king, what kind of a man did they look for? Well, they looked for a man who looked like a king. They said, look, there he is. He's taller than everybody in the town. That's the guy. And of course, he was a horrible king. Well, interestingly, uh, Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 3 seems to borrow from a lot of the things that Onasander wrote so many years before in the requirements of a general. Why might that be? Well, it's clear from a lot of Paul's writing that he saw the Christian life in military terms. You and I are encouraged by Paul to put on the armor of Christ. We are doing battle on a daily basis, not with our flesh and blood, but with the principalities and the powers of the air. The Christian life is a fight. Um, It it always stands out to me when uh, John MacArthur met with another pastor of a large church in California. I probably told you the story before and 
The other pastor looked across his desk at MacArthur. He said, you know, MacArthur, you know what your problem is? He says, you need to lighten up. And Pastor John looked back across the desk at him and said, it's kind of hard to lighten up when you're in the middle of a war. We have the sword of the Spirit. The Christian life is a battle. And so it shouldn't come as any surprise to us then that Paul would look on the office of elder in many ways as a general or as a group of generals who are called to lead the army into battle. Now, the church is not given the work of merely merely submitting to the work of these men. That is an aspect from Hebrews 13, 17. But you elect these men. Christ has placed it into the hands of the congregation to elect elders. To choose them. To assist them in assessing their call. However, these men do not represent you to Christ. They're not your representatives. The men you elect are Christ's representatives to you. They wield His authority. They are, in many aspects, His generals. And I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but we are sailing into headwinds. Have you noticed that? The church of Jesus Christ is sailing into headwinds. We can identify with uh, Paul as they tried to sail across the sea. All times require godly, brave, courageous men to provide leadership and stability. How much more important is that in our day? How much more important is it when basic Christian doctrines are offensive in culture? What sort of leadership do Afghani Christians need today? When attending corporate worship might cost them their lives. This morning as we look at this passage of Scripture... I'm going to break it up into three categories of godliness. There are as many commentaries as you read. There are the same number of ways to break this up. But I want to try to make this as simple as we can. When we look at men for leadership in the church, Christ's generals will portray three attributes of godliness. Personal godliness, family godliness, and civic godliness. The men Christ calls to serve as overseers are known for personal, family, and civic godliness. And notice when Paul begins here, he says, uh, the saying is trustworthy in verse 1. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And we, we, we talked about last week how it is appropriate for men to acknowledge calling, internal calling. They are reaching out for an office. And so Paul says here, he leads with, in verse 2, therefore an overseer must be above reproach. In the original, some of your translations might say, it is necessary. 
Therefore, it is needful that a, an elder must be above reproach. Why are these things necessary? Why is impeccable character necessary in a called man? Well, because he aspires to a noble work. The ordained offices of elder and deacon are noble offices, according to Scripture. It's work. Elders and deacons are not figureheads. These roles require work. They require effort. Ask Chris Shepherd if the office of deacon requires work. The work of the elder and the deacon will sometimes, maybe often, feel like a second part-time or maybe even a full-time job. But it is noble work. This could be translated as beautiful or honest work. Scripturally, the term noble uh, is a moral reference. This is a noble, morally noble work. It is God-honoring work. And therefore, the morality of the men who fill these offices matters. There are certain jobs in which character matters more than office. Others, For instance, you probably would not hire a convicted uh, thief to guard the bank vault. You probably wouldn't hire a kidnapper to babysit your children unless you have an ulterior motive. And so men who serve in these offices have to be well known. You, you see that. This is taken away from the text. They ought to be well known by you. They may be captains of industry. They may be leaders in many other respects and yet not be qualified to serve as elders. And what is implied then in these passages is that you know these men. You've lived with these men. You've eaten with these men. You've visited with these men. You've seen them in action. You know what kind of people that they are. And therefore you can cast a vote for them. Let's look then at the first characteristic of godliness. The overseer, the called man, demonstrates a personal godliness. And I'm going to subdivide this in into two other categories of personal godliness. Just his godliness in and of himself and then the way that he interacts with others. And notice these first few uh, characteristics. Therefore, an overseer must be, it is necessary that he be above reproach. Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable. Above reproach, the first characteristic, uh, some take as a heading above reproach and all of these other characteristics. But, but I want you to be careful here because this is not the same as sinless. That comes naturally. We understand that even Paul called himself the chief of sinners. These are not sinless men. We ought not confuse it in, in that way. But they are men who are consistent. It, is, it means simply one who has nothing which an adversary could seize upon with which to base a charge. 
In other words, we're not looking at these men and saying, well, he's got these little issues, these hiccups in his life, and everybody knows about them. These are blameless men. They're irreproachable. He's a man who listens when he's taught, who accepts responsibility when he sins. Now, I think one of the key elements for an elder who is above reproach is that when he sins, listen, when he sins, he doesn't try to hide it under the rug, but he accepts it. And when, when there is repentance necessary, he provides a model of repentance to the body of Christ. He's above reproach. He's sober-minded. This just means that he is a clear-minded man. He's not a fool. He's not given to whimsy. He's not driven by every fad of culture. He's not here and there. He's a wise man. Learning from Scripture. He's not a clown. He doesn't indulge in the spirit of the age. He exhibits, as one defines it, that state of mind which is free from the excessive influence of passion, lust, or emotion. He's steadfast. He's self-controlled, thirdly. He's a prudent man. man. When this term is used of, of women, it describes women who are chaste, who are decent, who are modest. In other words, they're not looking at the elemental uh, theories of the world to hem them in. You're not looking for the edges to press against. This is a man who walks and he has his own principles. He doesn't require uh, the church to goad him into place. Come on, you can do it. He is a man who exhibits a personal modesty and therefore, fourthly, he's respectable. Literally, he's orderly. He's decent. He has good behavior. Plato refers to uh, people who are respectable in this sense as those who quietly fulfill their duties. They're dutiful people. A fifth aspect of this man is that he's not addicted to wine. He's, he's not a drunkard. Do you see the This is an illustration of the self-control. He's not a man who goes out into society um, and and imbibes so much that he gets drunk. He has self-control. He's not a lover of money. He's not greedy. He's not covetous. He does not love white, shining, bright, glistening things silver or money, his life, his life is not defined by the pursuit of gain. Hebrews 13.5 shows the opposite of this to be contentment. This is a man who is content with what he has. Content with what the Lord has provided. He is instead dependent upon the Lord. He, with Paul, has learned how to be brought low and how to be raised up, how to abound. Lastly, under this category of what is he in his person? He's not a new convert. Uh, The Psalms will use this picture. You think of a seed that's planted in the ground and and we've got some in our home right now that are just beginning to, to, to punch through the soil. They're new plants. They're tender They look like if you just touch them, they might wither away. 
The man who serves in the office of overseer in the church can't be a new convert. He can't be a tender plant. Why is that? Well, because there's a risk here. Notice with me in verse 5, or verse 6. He might become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. He can't be a new Christian, not a baby Christian. Why are these things important? Why do these men have to be self-controlled? Because their character matters in the way that they carry out this office. And in Columbia, Tennessee, several years ago, there was a doctor who borrowed $300,000 from one of his patients. And a little bit of time went by, and this lady uh, started to ask for the money back from her doctor. And so uh, this uh, female doctor did exactly probably what any other doctor would do and diagnosed the patient with dementia. Character matters. We refer to the session of the church as a court. Did you know that? We have three courts. The session, the presbytery, and general assembly, the highest court in our system of government. Men who serve on the court serve as judges. Every time we sit and discuss, we are making decisions about the government of the church, and sometimes uh, those have a very, very personal effect. These men are called to evaluate the personal lives of the body of Christ and to make judgments. Is this man in sin? Does he need uh, rebuke? Does he need an exhortation? Does he need admonition? It is called a court. Because sometimes these men function like a small claims court. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, we are reminded that, that the people ought to be bringing their complaints before the elders, not to a judge in a civil court. These men try cases. Judges cannot be corrupt men. They cannot accept bribes. They have to be men of the law. They have to know where the law stops. They have to know where their authority ends. What can I say and what am I not permitted to say? Where does the law end and liberty begin? They must exercise the utmost discipline to approach decisions in an unbiased way. They cannot honor the rich above the poor. They must be impartial. So their character matters. But they also must show Good character, godliness toward others were still within personal, their personalities. Now notice, uh, as Paul begins there, he says in verse 2, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, these men must be hospitable. That word literally means that they must love strangers. They must love foreigners. These are men who, who show a care and a concern for all people. We talk about men who've never met a stranger. Well, that should at least in some sense be true of the elder. He loves all people. In Romans 16, 23, uh, Gaius was referred to as hospitable. He brought everybody into his home. He hosted the church there. Whatever was needed, he, he met it. 
Metaphorically then, a hospitable man is one who welcomes even those who are not of the Christian community, the alien and the foreigner. In terms of their behavior towards others, these men, Paul says, must be skillful in teaching. Able to teach literally means skillful in teaching. This uh, this trait distinguishes the elder, the office of elder from deacons. Elders must be able to teach, both, both in a positive and in a negative way. They must be able to present God's truth in a persuasive and a reasonable manner. That's the positive. Uh, the negative is, we learn from Titus chapter 1, verse 9, that these men must be able, both willing and able, to, contra- to rebuke those who contradict God's word. Consider Peter's instruction in the formation of the office of deacon in Acts chapter 6. You remember there he said that they were to form men who were able to wait tables. Literally, why? So that the apostles could give their attention to prayer and to God's word. This is the office now of the elder. They are teachers. It seems from 1 Timothy Chapter 5 and verse 17, that some elders are especially gifted at teaching God's word. But though all of overseers must have this ability in a certain degree, so that they can counsel those who seek their advice, some have received greater or different talents than others. Hence the distinction that we make between teaching and ruling elders. But our BCO even exhorts that, that some ruling elders seek, can seek licensure in the presbytery. Calvin notes, some people keep their learning to themselves. This might be through a speech impediment or through lack of mental ability or because they are so out of touch with ordinary people. Such people should, as he goes on to say, that is Paul, go and do something else. And not just a facility in speaking, but knowing how to apply God's word so that people listening benefit from this. This is the office of elder. And Paul's requirement here. So in in behavior towards others, these men must be able to teach. They must not be violent men. Notice how Paul puts... Alcohol or wine together for men a little bit differently than he does for women. In Titus, he puts alcohol together with gossip for women. With men, he puts alcohol together with violence. Often, those who take, partake of too much alcohol are violent men. They do not control their temple, tempers. So Paul says that the elder must not be violent He's not, a, he's not a pugnacious man. He's not a bully. He's not a man who uses manipulation to get his way. He do not, does not lord his position over other people. Literally, he is not a striker. These are men who do not manipulate through threats and violence. As Calvin again says, so violence here refers to men who give out threats and act in a warlike way. 
But what is he toward others? He's gentle. Like his Savior. He's yielding. He's not a man who won't compromise when the time calls for it. He's kind. He's moderate. When he differs with others, he settles those differences in a peaceable way. He can reach a compromise. He doesn't seek the harm of others. He works in words, not with fists. Lastly, he's not quarrelsome. He's not a brawler. His impulse is not war. These are the personal qualities of a man who is called to be an overseer. You begin to formulate this whole picture of who he is in himself. Self-controlled. Not, not with the sense that he needs to, to gain others um, um, compromised by fighting with them. He doesn't insist on his own way. He's a man, though, with principles. And he demonstrates his personal godliness in, his, in this way. But secondly, he, is an, he demonstrates family godliness. Notice with me verses 4 and 5. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? This is a man who demonstrates family godliness. And first of all, notice when we go back above, he's the husband of one wife. He literally is a one-woman man. There are many, many interpretations of this verse. Some Some would say that this means a minister must only pastor one church at a time. Others say that this means a divorced man may never, ever serve as an officer in Christ's church. My own father-in-law was prevented from serving as a deacon because he married a divorced woman. Does this mean a never married man? Is it a never remarried man? Does it simply prevent polygamy? The correct sense here, according to one commentator, is quantitative, not qualitative. The man is truly a one-woman man. There are no other women in his life. He is totally faithful. He does not flirt. There are not dalliances, as George Knight says. He is a man who, having contracted a monogamous marriage, is faithful to his wedding vows. In other words, do you see how this presents a picture of a man whose heart is right before the Lord? It's not necessarily just the physical uh, circumstance that he finds himself in. Is he divorced or not? Is he a devoted man? Is he devoted to one woman? Does he love one woman? It reinforces, again, that this office is limited to qualified men. Only a biological male can be a one-woman man, folks. May a divorced man serve as an elder? The answer to that requires a good deal of discernment. Although all divorce is the result of sin, not all divorce is 
sin. And so if there is a man who has been through a divorce, it requires a great deal of discernment. What was the nature of that divorce? What are the circumstances around it? Because God does not condemn all divorce. He's a one-woman man. His heart is set on one woman. He's a man who manages his household well. This term means both to rule over and to care for. And we can understand how both of these terms are accurate for the father of the home. He rules his home well and he cares for his home well. He expects obedience from his children and they yield it. Consider the testimony of wicked Eli in 1 Samuel 3.13 who did not restrain his children. He has his children in submission with dignity. He doesn't rule with an iron fist, but he does rule. His children obey him, and they demonstrate faithfulness to the Lord. This is obviously referring to children still in the home. They are, as Paul goes on in Titus 1.6, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. This is his children. This is a difficult requirement, isn't it? How is it that God could qualify a man based on the character of another human being who has his own will or her own will? I want to suggest to you three quick reasons. One is priority. If a man's children are not faithful to the Lord, these are children in his home, are not walking with the Lord, are disobedient, are open to charges of debauchery and insubordination, then that man's priority is his children. He doesn't need to take his time to rule the church. He needs to take his time to rule his home. A second reason is providence. We ought to understand that if there are men whose children are not obedient, are not faithful to the Lord, then God, by his providence, is saying, now is not the time for you to serve as an elder. I have not called you. And the last reason is promises. It is a biblical principle that parents who are faithful to train their children in the faith will see the fruit of that teaching. Think of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7, to diligently train up your children. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6, that they will not depart from it when they are older. These are all promises. God says, I will be God to you and to your children who come after you. There is a biblical principle that those who are faithful to train their children in the faith will see the fruit of that training. I struggled with that myself for many years, but it is plain. That the man who exercises his authority with reverence and dignity ought to expect that his children will follow after that training. Let's look at a last characteristic. This is a man who demonstrates family godliness, personal godliness, and lastly, a civic sort of godliness. Look with me at verse 7. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. This is a man who has a good testimony, not just in the church, but outside of the church. 
If you were to go and talk to his co-workers or his family or his neighbors, they are going to observe the same kind of man that you observe. Now, they may not appreciate it. They may hate his self-discipline. They may hate his commitment to doing the right thing. They may hate his commitment to not shaving corners, to not tweaking the balance sheet, or compromising on the requirements of the company policy. But at the end of the day, they will say, he's a good man. He's not a liar. He's not a cheat. He's not a hypocrite. In every human sense of the word, he demonstrates goodness. He brings my tools back on time. The men that Christ calls to serve as overseers are known for personal family and a civic sort of godliness. The men who rule the church well, in other words, are men who are obviously ruled by Christ. You see that? The men to whom Christ entrusts authority are those men who day by day in every principle submit themselves to the authority of Christ. Why? Because they're just a channel through which the authority of Christ flows. It is their work to represent Christ to you. And so as, as you, the church, select men for this office, you are tasked with helping men assess their call. We're never going to do this faultlessly. Uncalled men are going to get elected and called men may not. And men, as you assess your call, you must look to these standards which Christ has set for. And let me just say one last thing. Christ has not called these men to be super Christians. These are not the standards for those who would aspire to some sort of nobility in the Christian hierarchy. These are models for you to follow in the ordinary Christian life. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we confess to you that these are very high standards indeed. And they require us to confess that apart from your grace, no one would reach them. So Lord, we ask first for your protection for the men who serve as elder. Lord, sustain them. Provide for them. Protect them. Enable them to remain diligent. To be sober-minded men. Not to give in to the, the whims of fancy but to be uncompromising, committed men. We ask that you continue to raise up men with this kind of character in our body so that we might look to them and follow their example. And we pray for ourselves, Lord, as, as the body of Christ. Help us to aspire to this as well because we know that this kind of character honors you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.